Life is stuffed with questions. How's the family? Are you feeling better? What did the doctor say? Did you get that job? When do you graduate? Have you announced your retirement? Will you go to prom with me? Did you... Did you see the ball game last night? Becky, did you see what she was wearing? <laughs> What's for lunch? You think the preacher's going to let us out early today? <laughs> Life is stuffed with questions. Sometimes there are significant questions. What I mean by significant is that they are universal in their scope in that everyone must ask the question and answer the question. It's true that the Bible does not contain all of life's questions or answers. But the Bible does contain all of life's significant questions and answers. This morning we continue our sermon series entitled Blessed Assurance, a study in the Gospel of Luke. And today we come to one of those significant universal questions. It's found on the lips of the disciples as they look one to the other and looking to Jesus, they ask the question, who is this? My friend, that is a significant question. Every person has to ask that question. Every person has to answer that question. The answer to that question carries eternal ramifications. Who is this? This morning, I invite you to take your Bible. Turn to Luke chapter 8. We'll be reading verses 22 to 25. I ask for you to stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 8, let's begin at verse 22. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and raging waters. The storm subsided. All was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and to the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. After Jesus had finished preaching, he said to his disciples, let's go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They got into a boat, they set sail, and sometime in the middle of the night, a storm came over that great lake, and all the disciples were petrified. In order for us to better understand this story, we need to know something about the Sea of Galilee, and we need to know something about the disciples. 
The Sea of Galilee is a large body of water. At its longest point, it's about 13 miles long. At its widest point, it's about eight miles wide. In the first century, this was the place where the Israeli fishing business boomed. Many of the disciples cut their teeth on the Sea of Galilee. They learned how to be fishermen, and some of them had a rather lucrative business when Jesus called them, saying, come, follow me. The Sea of Galilee is located in the midst of hills and mountains. It's not uncommon for winds to whip around those hills and mountains, causing havoc on those trying to navigate the Sea of Galilee. Sometimes storms could be so ferocious that it could be uh, rather dangerous to uh, try to sail those seas. The disciples are with Jesus in the boat. We are told that uh, they are petrified. The reason they're so scared is because a storm has come up a storm that is like no other storm they've ever experienced. You can well imagine that a storm on that great body of water is kind of an occupational hazard for a fisherman. I mean, some of these guys should know how to navigate a storm. Yet it says that all of them are distraught. All of them are very, very scared. I can imagine if Matthew's scared. I mean, he's an accountant for crying out loud. I mean, he's kind of calculated the odds, and the odds are not in their favor that they're going to survive, and he is cowardly hovering in the corner of the boat. I understand if Thomas is afraid. Oh, poor Thomas. He doubts they're going to survive. He's doubted whether or not they need to get in the boat to begin with. He doesn't know why in the world they're doing this. They could walk around the land, and it would be much safer. I imagine that Matthew was scared. I can understand Thomas's apprehension. But you also have guys like Peter and James and John. I mean, they're fishermen by trade. Yet on this night, in this storm, they don't offer any words of comfort. They don't say anything either. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them record this story. All of them use the very same word to describe the storm. The Greek word is lalips. Lalips was a severe storm. It was a storm that described hurricane-type activity, tornado kind of activity. This is not just a thunderstorm. This is a lalips. This is not just a rain shower. This is a lalips. A lalips has such wind that it smacks the boat all over the Sea of Galilee. The rain is falling with such force that it feels as if those raindrops are pins that are puncturing the skin. And the water is coming in so quickly that these seasoned sailors cannot bucket it out fast enough for as soon as they try to get the water out, more water comes in over the boat. And they believe that they are surely going to be swamped. These guys are in a storm they've never experienced before. They are in a lalips. You ever been in a lalips? You ever been in a hurricane? Have you ever survived a tornado? Some of us have. I'll never forget April the 27th, 2011. On that infamous day, 62 tornadoes ripped through the state of Alabama. Eight of them were registered as an EF4. Five of them registered as an EF5. And on that day, 
240 Alabamians lost their life. 3,000 people were injured that day. 23,000 homes across this great state were damaged or destroyed. Historians have already told us that this is the third greatest tragedy in our U.S. history, only behind September the 11th and Hurricane Katrina. At that time, I was the pastor at First Baptist Church, Pleasant Grove. In our little community, we lost 12 individuals to those tornadoes. Hundreds were injured. 25% of the homes destroyed or badly damaged. 1,000 out of 4,000. It was horrendous. It was devastating. It was overwhelming. I pray that I never have to live through another tornado like that. It was a lapse. It was overwhelming. I can understand the fear of the disciples. They're in the midst of it. They're in the eye of the hurricane. They're feeling the tornado-type winds that are howling uh, through their boat. And, and they hear the creaks and the cracks, and they realize that they're as good as dead. I don't know if they talked very much one to the other. They probably barked out some instructions here or there, hold that line, uh, get that bucket, do this, do that. They, they probably were scurrying around. And someone asked the question, where is Jesus? That's a good question, isn't it? You're in the midst of a layups. You're in the midst of a thunderstorm. You know he got on the boat. You can't see your hand in front of your face because the rain is falling so forcefully, but you're pretty much assuming that Jesus is still in the boat, and somebody asked somebody else, where is Jesus? The last place I saw him was in the back of the boat. It's Mark who says that Jesus was asleep in the stern of the boat. He's asleep in a layups. He's asleep in this storm. He's in the back of the boat. Somebody says, in the back? What's he doing in the back? I don't know. Why don't you go see? Okay, I'll go see. Hey, I went to go see. He's asleep. What's he doing asleep? I don't know. I didn't ask him. Once again, Mark tells us that Jesus was in the back of the boat, in the stern, asleep on a cushion. Luke doesn't give us that detail, but Mark does. Mark says that Jesus was asleep on a cushion. In other words, he's asleep on a pillow. You think to yourself, well, that's just a little detail. It kind of keeps the story moving along until you realize that the pillow provides purpose. I don't fly very often, but several years ago, Jane Ellen and I were flying a, a rather lengthy trip. The flight attendant came up to me and she said, Sir, would you like a pillow? I knew what she was asking. She was asking me, sir, do you intend on going to sleep? Because if you intend on going to sleep, I'm going to give you a pillow. It'll make it much more comfortable. Uh, if you want to go to sleep, if you want to fall asleep intentionally, here's a pillow for you. I knew exactly what she was saying. You know what Mark is telling us? Mark is saying that Jesus is asleep. He didn't just drift off and uh, saw some logs. Jesus is asleep on purpose. He went to sleep intentionally in the back of the boat, in the midst of a layups. Everything is caving in, and Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat. What do you do with a sleeping Jesus when you're in the midst of a layups? I'll tell you what you do. You don't sit there quietly. You go and wake him up. You do what the disciples did. They went and they woke him up. And they didn't wake him up gingerly. They didn't wake him up timidly. They forcefully woke him up. Jesus, master, master, Luke says, we are going to drown. 
There's no doubt about this. There's no denying this. It's inevitable. We are as good as dead. This is the end for us, and we just want you to be awake to see it. I mean, this is going to be it. We are going to drown. When Matthew tells the story, Matthew's version asks it more of a question than a statement. Don't you care that we are going to drown? You hear the indictment on their lips, don't you? Jesus, you're supposed to be the master of compassion, yet you don't care about our plight. We've followed you. We've left everything behind. We got in this boat because you told us to get into this boat, and now we are going to die. Don't you care that we are going to drown? Once again, it's Matthew's version where Jesus wakes up, looks at his disciples, and says, why are you so afraid? Well, if you must know, hello, look around. We're afraid because we're going to die. And Jesus stands up. And he offers two Greek words. Now, Luke doesn't record these words for us. Mark does. And in Mark's version, Jesus stands up and says two words, quiet, still. And everything was quiet. And everything became still. It's not that the, that the wind just died down a little bit. That, that EF5 died down to nothing. It's not just that the rain just became a sprinkle. No, it, it stopped. That rain that fell with such force, it completely stopped falling from the sky. And the water that began to crash the boat and, and, uh, and come over the edge of the boat, it became completely calm. And all Jesus had to do was stand up and say two Greek words. Quiet. Still. And everything obeyed. It's almost as if he's the master of all creation. It's almost as if the wind and the waves couldn't help themselves but obey. Because the one with all authority had just stood and said, quiet, still. And everything obeyed. You could have heard a pin drop. Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, where is your faith? That's an important question. Where is your faith? Faith is not the absence of fear. Faith is the presence of obedience. Faith is taking God at his word. It's one thing to be a person of faith when the sun is shining. It's another thing to be a person of faith when the storm is raging. Warren Wiersbe says it this way, do not doubt in the night what God has taught you in the day. If it's true in the day, it's still true in the night. If it's true when the sun is shining, it's still true when the storm is raging. If it's true in good times, it must also be true in bad times. If it's true in triumph, it must also be true in tragedy. So don't ever doubt in the night what God has taught you in the day. 
Think about what Jesus has been teaching his disciples in the daytime. You look at Luke chapter 7 and chapter 8, it's all about faith. Chapter 7 begins with that infamous story of the faith of the Roman centurion. He says to Jesus, all I have to do is Uh, All you have to do is just send the word and my servant will be healed for I'm a man under authority. I tell this one go and he goes. I tell this one come and he comes. I'm a person who recognizes authority and Jesus, you have all authority. So all you have to do is say the word and my servant who is sick will be healed. I don't deserve you to do this. I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. But all you have to do is just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus responds by saying, I have not seen such great faith even in all of Israel. And Jesus sent the word, and the servant was healed. Later in Luke chapter 7, we get a up-close, front-lines view of the wrestling match of the faith in the heart and mind of John the Baptist, that super saint. He's in jail because he stood up to the king. The king was having an illicit affair with Herodias, his brother's wife. And John the Baptist stood up against it saying, King, you're wrong and this needs to stop. And the king threw him in jail. And while in jail, Jesus launched his ministry. And Jesus preached his first sermon, that sermon that put him on the map. He quoted from Isaiah chapter 61. And in Isaiah, it says that the Son of Man will come and among other things, he will release the prisoner. And John thinks to himself, I'm in prison, I'm incarcerated Um, not because I did anything wrong, but because I've done a lot of things right. And so I imagine that Jesus will come over the horizon, he'll bust me out of jail, and all will be well. We'll sing Kumbaya, and we'll go on to do ministry together. But he waits, and he waits, and he waits, and Jesus never shows up. So John sends a couple of his own disciples, his friends, to Jesus, and asks the question, are you the one, or should we expect someone else? Did I make a mistake when I identified you as Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Did I put all the eggs in the wrong basket? Are you legitimately the Lord, or are you a hope? There's a wrestling match of faith in his mind and in his heart. And Jesus, knowing that John will not get out of jail, says to his disciples, you go back and tell John what you see and what you hear. The blind receive sight. The deaf can hear. The lame can walk. The good news is preached to the poor and lives are being transformed. And when we talked about that passage, we got to the point where we concluded that John had a wrestling match but responded with great faith. How do we know he had great faith? Because he trusted Christ. Because we made this statement. I may not choose this, whatever the this may be, but if you choose this for me, I choose you. I wouldn't choose this incarceration. I wouldn't choose this laylips. I wouldn't choose this suffering. I wouldn't choose this storm. But Lord, if you permit it, you're going to promote it. If you choose it for me, I want you to know I choose you. My friend, that is a picture of great faith. At the very end of Luke chapter 7, it's the woman who had the sinful life. She busts into the a party. She crashes the party. Her name's not on the guest list. She comes off the wall. She comes And with tears streaming down her face, she stands at the feet of Jesus. Her tears, liquid love, wet the feet of Christ. She bends down, lets her hair loose and dries his feet with her hair and then takes the tools of her trade, takes that alabaster jar which would have been worn as a necklace 
and she breaks it and she pours all of its contents onto the feet of Christ. This one who was a prostitute comes in in a position and posture of humility and worship. She's on bended knee with head downcast, eyes closed, and she is begging for salvation. And Jesus says unto her, your faith has saved you. Not your tears. It's not that your perfume has saved you. It's not your performance has saved you, but your but your faith has saved you. And Jesus gives us the only equation he'll ever give us for salvation. The salvation is made possible by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Your faith has saved you. That's the only equation Jesus will ever give. He gives it to this sinful woman. In essence, he gives it to Simon the Pharisee. He gives it to you. He gives it to me, to anyone who will listen. It is by faith that we are saved, for salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then we come to Luke chapter 8, and Jesus begins to preach and teach about entrance into the kingdom of God and what he expects of us. And he talks about the parable of the sower and the seed, how the seed is the word of God. And Jesus scatters that word of God upon different types of people. These types of soil, it's not who you are, but it's who you have become. And some people have become hard, so the word of God bounces right off. It doesn't penetrate them. Other people are, have become rocky in the sense that they're shallow. They embrace the word of God, but as soon as the son of adversity or persecution comes against them, they wither away. And then some people are like that thorny soil. They receive the word of God, but they also receive simultaneously the, the need for riches of this world and pleasure in their culture. And while the word of God grows, so does the desire for more and for better and for more and for better, more things, better things, more money, more success. And those things grow and it chokes out the word of God. But Jesus says there are some people who are good soil, and how you know that is because they hear the word, they receive it, they retain it, they produce a bumper crop 30, 60, 100 times over. And when asked the question, Jesus, your mother and brothers are here to see you, Jesus says, who are my mother and who are my brothers? I'll tell you, they are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. This whole pericope is all about faith. From chapter seven to chapter eight, it's all about what faith looks like. This is what Jesus has been teaching the disciples in the daytime. And all the while, they've been saying amen. All the while, they've been saying, sick em, Jesus. All the while, they've been saying, attaboy, Christ. All the while, they've been saying, whoa, look at what Jesus is doing here. Look at what he's saying there. Look at how he's doing the miraculous there. And all the while, they said, yes, 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 this is faith. This is who we are. But the moment the layups struck is the moment they said, we are as good as dead. Because they questioned in the night what they had been taught in the day. Faith is not the absence of fear. Faith is the presence of obedience. It's taking Christ at his word. If you've been in church very long, you've probably heard this sermon. You've heard several sermons preached from this story or the one found in Matthew and Mark. Usually the punchline goes something like this. If you have enough faith, Jesus will calm the storms of your life. If you trust Jesus, he will calm the storms of your life. What he did for the disciples 
And standing up in their layups saying, quiet, still, he will do for you. All you have to do is have faith in Christ. The problem with that is that this passage doesn't promise that. This passage does not promise that if you trust Christ, he will calm all your storms. It does not promise that if you're a follower of Christ, that Jesus will help you to avoid the storms of life. Nowhere in this passage does it make such an audacious promise to you or to me. It doesn't promise the absence of suffering. It doesn't promise the absence of a laylips. It doesn't promise the absence of storm. It doesn't even promise that Jesus will calm all of your storms. Because there's somebody listening to my voice and you have faith in Christ. You have the faith that can move a mountain and the storm still rages. And if it's true that if you have faith in Christ, he will calm all the storms, you have faith in Christ, yet the storm still rages, there has to be a problem. Either there's a problem with you or there's a problem with Jesus or there may be a problem with our understanding of the passage. I think what Jesus is showing his disciples is that Jesus may not keep us from the storm, but he will keep us through the storm. I have a friend who was talking with me through this passage, and uh, he said, Davin, you know, we just need to follow the lead of Jesus on this. And I said, okay, I'm all for that. What does that mean? And he says, well, uh, when you find yourself in a layups in a storm like this, you just need to take a nap. I mean, Jesus took a nap. You need to take a nap. I said, what does that mean? What does that look like to take a nap in the midst of a, of a layups? And he says, nap is an acrostic, never anxious presence. That's what you need, a, a never anxious presence. Do you remember Jesus said in the Gospel of John, in this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You remember those words that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippian church when he said, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with supplication, present your request to God, and the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. I love the imagery that the Apostle uses. Paul knows what it is to be chained to a soldier. He knows what it is to be incarcerated. He knows what it is to be in jail. He knows what it is to have a sentry posted right at his door, walking back and forth, back and forth, saying to anyone out there, you're not going to get through, not on my watch. And the apostle takes that imagery, and he says, when you are not anxious about anything, but you lift up your requests unto the Lord through prayer and supplication, the peace that belongs to God, the peace that is from God, God, the peace of God, which will boo, blow your mind. It transcends all human understanding. That's what it means to blow your mind. It transcends all human understanding. It will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. That God's peace is personified like a soldier who walks back and forth, back and forth across the door of the entrance to your mind and your heart and says to the enemy, You're not getting through, not on my watch. 
No negative thought, not on my watch. No negative feeling, not on my watch. No lie from the adversary, not on my watch. I don't know about you, but I praise God for the peace of God which transcends all understanding and it guards. It goes back and forth, back and forth across the door of my heart and your heart, my mind and your mind. And the Lord says, this person belongs to me, an enemy you can't get through, not on my watch. What is Jesus promising? He's not promising the absence of a laylips. He's not even promising that he will calm every storm in your life. What he is promising is that I may not keep you from it, but I will keep you through it. Horatio Spafford was a lucrative 19th century businessman. He got most of his money from real estate. But in the Chicago fire of 1871, most of his assets burned up in smoke. It took him a couple years to recover from that. But uh, in the spring of the year 1873, he and his wife decided that in the fall they would have a trip with the family to Europe. Horatio and his wife had four daughters. And right before they were about to leave, Horatio was detained because of business. He told his wife and daughters to go ahead and board the boat and set sail, and he would catch the next one and meet them in Europe. On November the 22nd, 1873, that sailing vessel that housed Mrs. Spafford and the four daughters struck another ship. Both of them sank to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. The survivors were taken to England. Mrs. Stafford was one of those survivors. She wrote her husband, Horatio, a two-word telegram. It simply read, saved alone. Grief gripped the heart of Horatio, knowing that his four daughters were encased in the frigid waters of the Atlantic Ocean. He boarded the next ship he possibly could, set sail for England so he could be reunited with his grieving wife. He asked the captain, when you get to the place where my daughters are buried, will you please just send me word? Sometime in the night, the word came from the captain. Mr. Spafford, it's here that your daughters are buried in the waters below. Horatio went out of his sleeping quarters, stood and looked over the banister, and I can imagine the tears that just streamed down his cheeks as he looked knowing that beneath lie his four daughters. After a few moments of grief and sadness, he regained his composure. He went back into his sleeping quarters, sat down at his desk, and wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh the bliss 
of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. So praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Friend, what am I trying to tell you today? I'm trying to tell you that sometimes Jesus may not keep you from the laylips, but he will keep you through the laylips. He may not keep you from the death of your children, but he'll keep you through the death of your children. He may not keep you from unemployment, but he'll keep you through unemployment. He may not keep you from the cancer, but it'll keep you through the cancer. He may not keep you from divorce, but it'll keep you through divorce. He may not keep you from brokenheartedness, but it'll keep you through brokenheartedness. He may not keep you from adversity, but it'll keep you through adversity. I just came to tell you that Jesus is the Lord of the Laylips. Jesus turned to the disciples, where is your faith? And they looked at each other. They said of Jesus, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this? Friend, you've got to ask that question. And you've got to answer that question today. You've got to answer the question today, who is this? I can tell you what some other people have said. It's John the Baptist who says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I can tell you what the Apostle Peter will say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I can tell you what the Roman centurion will say, surely this man is the Son of God. But who is this? You've got to answer it. For me, from this passage, Jesus is the God-man who rides every storm with you. Jesus is the God-man, and he rides every storm with us. He is God. He can say, quiet, still, and everything has to obey. He is man. Sometimes he's found asleep in the back of the boat. I tell you what, I praise the Lord for a sleeping Jesus. At least I'm in his boat. At least he's in the boat I'm in. I praise the Lord that Jesus is with me. I'll take a sleeping Jesus over no Jesus every day of the week and twice on Sunday. He is, he is the God-man who rides every storm with you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He'll never abandon you. He may not keep you from the storm, but he sure will keep you through the storm. And this morning I just came to say, he is the Lord of every Lalips. Heavenly Father, we bow before you right now. And Jesus, you are speaking, you are ministering, you are drawing people unto yourself in this very moment. So in this holy moment of invitation, we pray that the angels will wage war on our behalf, keeping the adversary far from this place. And Lord, if you are speaking to someone to give their heart and life to Christ, I pray that today will be the day of their salvation. That as the first note is struck, they will come down this aisle, take one of the pastors by the hand, and say, I need this Jesus in my boat. There's some people here, and they have great faith in you. They trust you completely. 
They have a faith that can move mountains, and yet the storm still rages all around them. Lord Jesus, please be uh, benevolent towards them in this moment. Maybe they need to come and kneel here at the altar and just cast all their cares upon the one who cares so much for them. Maybe you're drawing some people to this faith family to be part of this church membership. Lord, as you speak, help us to respond in this moment right now and help us to answer the question, who is this? Jesus, thanks for being the God-man who rides every storm with me. In Jesus' name, amen.